Isaiah 9, reading from verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child has been born, to us a son given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. Thanks, Emma. So, hello everyone. If you don't know me yet, my name's Nathaniel and um, I serve here in the ministry team at BPCC and I'll be bringing the word to us this evening. Uh, but before I do, I want you to do something for me. Um, I'm going to describe someone, uh, someone who we should all know, and I'm going to say some things about them. And when you figure out who it is, I want you to shout out, like actually shout out, or this won't work, shout out who you think it is. Uh, so let's go for the first person. Uh, I'm thinking of someone who is a part of our church. Um, they're up on stage fairly often. Uh, they're just a tiny bit older than I am a little bit. Um, They are male. Uh, They're very good at making things out of timber. Uh, They, yes, it's John. Very good. I'm thinking of John. My clicker isn't working, so uh, that's something I should definitely do before. There we go. There's John, the man himself. That's on the the services drive. That's just in the church drive. So, the next person I'm thinking of, um, also someone we all know from our church, uh, this person plays an instrument. Uh, they're one of our young adults. Uh, they have pretty longish hair for a guy, probably in a haircut. No, it's not quite. It's Hayden. Very good. <laughs> okay. How about someone else? Different, not someone we know. Not from our church. Um, but they are on the news fairly often. We see their face on TV a lot. Um, they're, in, they're part of government. They're in Canberra quite a lot. Uh, they're part of the Liberal Party. And they have a huge, expensive mansion on the waterfront in Point Piper in Sydney. Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so why do I have you guessing these people? Because as we head into Christmas... We're talking about the anticipation that was building up to the birth of Jesus, which all of God's people were waiting for for thousands of years, right from the moment that sin entered the world. And they knew that he was coming because that whole time God kept on telling telling them things about him, giving them clues and information and stuff about who this coming saviour would be. 
He said that he would send a saviour. He was going to fix the problem of sin in the world. And right from the Garden of Eden, right from when God cast Adam and Eve out, when sin first came into the world, he kept on giving them more and more information about this coming king. Now this sort of reminds me of something which I've been waiting for for quite a long time. Not quite as long, but it does feel like forever. Uh, Back in 2012, the sequel to one of my favourite games was announced. It's called Bannerlord, and it's taking absolutely forever to be made. But over the last five years, right, uh, the developers have kept on releasing little bits of information, clips and photos and updates on how the game's engine's going to work, and that shows that they haven't given up on it. It shows that we keep on getting led on. We've got more information and all us super nerds out there who have been keen for five years for this game, we're going to get it eventually, but we know it's coming. We know they haven't given up. And in some ways, this sort of reminds me of God's promise to us about this coming king. Because in the same way, all through the Old Testament, God kept on giving more and more information about this coming saviour that was going to arrive. But as we see history progressing through the Old Testament, we see that we needed this saviour to be more than just a fixer. Uh, We recently finished our series on judges, right? And we learnt about the poop cycle how God's people keep on turning away from him and feeling the effects of living without God and suffering and going, God, save us, please. We'll be good and worship you again. And he restores them, but then they just do it all over again. And last week, John showed us how after the time of the judges, God's people tried to appoint a human king to rule over them, just like everyone else had. But that didn't work out the way they wanted. That never could work out the way they wanted it to, right? Because how can a sinful human lead other sinful humans? We need a perfect king. We need a ruler who will love us and care for us and lead us in the right direction always. We need a ruler who will fill our need for okayness. But there was hope. There's this promise, this promise that God would send a saviour to fix the problem of sin. So this evening, as we uh, are coming towards Christmas, next week, Christmas, wow. As we go towards Christmas in a week's time, let's look at the birth of Jesus, but let's not look through the eyes of Mary or Joseph or the Magi or the shepherds or any of those other people around. Let's look at the birth of our Saviour through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. He wrote 800 years before Jesus was born. And Isaiah was writing at a time when there was a king over Israel. But as we saw, the kings turned out like the judges. Even the good ones eventually died. And God's people just kept on falling back into sin again. Isaiah came and he warned, he warned the people and he warned the king that because they had turned away from God again, they would be conquered and they would be exiled. They would be taken away from their homeland into captivity. But then he gives hope. Even though there would be darkness, there was a light coming. So Emma read the whole passage just earlier, but I'm going to read verses 2 to 6 again. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. 
the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now there's a heap in this passage we could talk about. There's just so much going on there. So much about who the promised king is and what he's going to do and what it's, what it's like under him. But today we're going to look at three key things that it shows us. We learn that the king is the light in our darkness. The king brings freedom from our foes. And the king is everlastingly perfect. Now, I'm sure that most of us have heard that verse quite a few times, right? We read out this passage pretty much every Christmas. Uh, that first verse, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And this darkness language is very strong, right? Uh, the darkness, this is referring to the darkness described in the last couple of chapters, where Isaiah spent a while just telling the people, bad, naughty, terrible, you're going to be cast away into darkness. You're going to be exiled from your land because you've turned away from God again. Your enemies are going to overwhelm you and carry you away and you'll be lost. You'll be away from God. You will be in deep darkness. But Isaiah isn't just making a geographical statement about some ancient people long ago. Because our world today is a world in deep darkness. We live in deep darkness, darkness in our world and darkness in our lives. But Jesus came as a light in the darkness. We probably also all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now our world really is in darkness. Without Jesus we have no way of knowing and being right with God. On our own, we are sinful people who desperately need saving, who are all in darkness, who are all separate from God. And maybe you here, maybe you are feeling that you are separate from God. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't come to see the light that's in Christ. Maybe you're still one of those walking in deep darkness. Well, if so, the good news is that there is light this promised king, the guy who Isaiah is describing so longingly here, he has come. This guy who was talked about all through the Old Testament promised he has come. The light has come into the world and we, that's why we celebrate Christmas, right? Because our King Jesus has been born. He has come and if you don't know him yet, if you are living in darkness away from God, this light has come to make you right with God. And if you already know Christ if you have already come to know him, then this is still really important and relevant for us as Christians as well. Because, let's face it, often we don't live in the light of Christ. We often turn back to the darkness. We turn back to that sin and that stuff that we know is wrong. A few verses on from John 3.16, John 3.19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. All too often, you know, we turn right back into the darkness because really our hearts love it, right? 
This reminds me of a really great Christian comic from one of my favourite Christian comics, comic artists. Uh, it's this one here, if you can't read it, it says, uh, the mum's saying to his son, he, she says, this is a difficult decision. In times like this, you have to learn to trust your heart, sweetie. And the son goes, what's it going to be, heart? And the heart goes, sin. And the son goes, ha ha ha, sin it is. And that, that reflects our heart, right? That reflects who we are, because without Christ, we are sinful, we are lost in darkness. I know that I can't claim to always live in the light. I know that when I look at my heart, all too often, I do see a love for that darkness. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It could be you know, love of career, popularity, admiration. It could be a love of money and greed. It could be lust, pornography. It could be something which seems good, but isn't good. Something which just can't drag you out of that mire of darkness, something which will always let you down if you rely on it, put it where God only belongs. Could be a person. Could be people. Could be family. Friends maybe. Or something you do, some way of serving. All these things can become things that we hold on to, things that we focus on and turn away from the light. But the light has come, right? That's the good news. That's why this passage is good news. That's why we're celebrating. That's why we sing happy songs and Christmas carols. Because we, we the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. And whether you're seeing the light of Christ for the first time, or whether you're being reminded to live your life in the light of the salvation that you have been given, the good news is that the light has come. The one which Isaiah looked forward to from 800 years before his birth is Jesus. And that is why we celebrate at Christmas. Because our Saviour has come. He's already paid the price for our sin. He's already given us a way out of the darkness, a way to be made children of God. So that shows us how Jesus is the light in our darkness, right? It shows us the need we have for the light. But what about the darkness, right? It's still there. What do we do about those battles that we can never win? Well, our passage tells us that our king defeats these. Our enemies can't stand up to him. Uh, there's a reference in there to verse 4. Uh, so a reference in verse 4 to the story of Gideon, uh, which reminds us about this. We looked at Gideon a couple of weeks ago as part of our Judges series. That's the one where God uses the weakest man from the weakest family and the weakest tribe in all of Israel to save the entire nation. And even though he doesn't get all the stuff right, God still uses him for his glory. Verse 4 tells us, as in the day of Midian's defeat, this king will break everything that oppresses us. But the difference is that here, God is acting directly. He's not acting through a flawed human. He's acting through this perfect, promised king. Now, we could talk for ages, and everyone would get really, really bored of me talking, about how Jesus defeats our enemies and how through the Holy Spirit he fights our battles for us and empowers and enables us. But let's go to the most important enemy Jesus has defeated. The reason that he came to earth, to defeat death itself. Because he has defeated the biggest, the final, the ultimate enemy which comes after all of us. We don't talk about death that much as a society, right? 
It feels sometimes like maybe death isn't as present or as, as much of an issue as it might have been some other time, some long times ago when people were just you know, dropping dead from cholera or, oh, look, he's, he's, infected. He's, he's dead, he's gone. We don't see death or talk about death as much as you might expect. But I think that an understanding of death lies behind a great deal of how we live and how we act as a society. Think about it, right? Everything that we do and the whole way that the Western mind is geared to live is based on getting everything you want here and now in this life. It's about getting as much pleasure as possible, grabbing hold of as much fleeting happiness as we can while we've still got the chance to do that. And this is a fairly recent major issue in our culture because ours is the first culture where most people don't believe in a life after death, where most people don't have hope for something better. Tim Keller uh, puts it really well. He puts it this way. He says, Every civilization that has ever lived, every civilization that has ever existed has had consensus and social certainty on the part of most of the people that it was possible after you died to have more fulfilment more love, more glory, more joy than you had in this life. As a result, in those other places, in spite of the fact that people were dropping dead on the street five hours after they got their first symptoms of cholera, they were not as dominated by the fear of death as we are. We see death less as a culture, but really, our understanding of death and what it means shapes a lot more than we might think. Because the Western culture is about achievement and experience, about doing what feels good for us now, what, what looks right in our own eyes, while we've got the chance to do that. And that contrasts with the Christian attitude to death, right? Because we don't view death as the end, but rather because our king has defeated death once and for all, we see death as only being the beginning of a glorious new life in him. Now, I haven't had to face potentially dying in the immediate future before, uh, but I have met some people who have and who have really powerfully modelled to me what being a Christian looks like in the face of death. Uh, one of these was at an assembly event that we go to with the youth uh, every now and again. This one was uh, with some other Reformed Church youth groups down at the Westside Church, uh, and a guy called Jeremy spoke. Now, Jeremy is a really funny bloke. He's really lovable. He's in his early 30s got a wife, he's got kids, he works in earthworks, he's studied theology, and he's just a really great guy. And a few years ago, Jeremy was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumour which will kill him. And at this assembly event, Jeremy shared his testimony, and he shared it as part of a message on having hope and joy in Jesus. And he shared it out how because of his identity in Christ, because of what his king has done, he lives his life with joy. Even though he is going to, in a couple of years, within the next few years, say goodbye to his wife and kids and leave them behind, he has joy in his saviour because he knows there is so much more. And it's not just words, the way that he talks, the way that he lives and acts and speaks just radiates this joy in Christ. And that is the sort of way that we can live if we truly know and rely on our King. He's defeated our every enemy. He's even conquered death itself. So we can rejoice because we live under his rule. We can't do anything to help him win that battle. 
He's already won it. We can't do anything to fight alongside and earn our way into his kingdom, but we can only respond with joy and gratitude. If we look at verse 3, we see that being a part of God's kingdom means rejoicing in the spoils of God's victory. It means reaping the harvest which the Lord has sown. It means rejoicing in Jesus and what he has done. And this is a contagious joy, right? It's not just something which we feel within ourselves. But like, like Jeremy, when we live in the light of what God has done for us, we stand out to the world around us. Those people who are still are in the darkness can't help but see the light which shines through us. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God has chosen to use us to spread his kingdom on earth as he grows and builds his kingdom here. Because, of course, while Jesus has won the victory, his kingdom is a now but not yet kingdom. When we look around, we see God having an impact on the world, right? We, we live in the light of Christ. We are saved and that's awesome and he changes the world and he acts powerfully. But it's still a world being changed, right? The world is still, a, you know, it's a pretty sucky place. There is still so much bad stuff around. So much sin and so much pain, so much brokenness. If this was the perfect kingdom, then it would be a bit of an anticlimax. But that's because God's kingdom is here now, but also not yet. Jesus brought God's kingdom to earth, but the arrival and the growth of the kingdom is a process. Much like D-Day in World War II. D-Day was the day when the Allied troops landed in Normandy, and they stormed the beaches, took control, and once they had that foothold, once they'd won that battle... World War II was pretty much a victory. The fighting kept on going, but from that day, the Germans were on the retreat. And Jesus' resurrection is much the same. Even though the war continues, even though the kingdom is still in the process of being established, our king has won the biggest battle. He has defeated death itself. So, we can both live in the light of Christ now, relying on him, dependent on his light while we await that awesome day when in the kingdom of God will be fully present, like that in one glorious moment when Christ returns, when there will be complete life and complete life, no darkness. So we see our need for our king's light, right? We see his victory over death. But let's take a bit of a look, a little more closely at what he does and how he rules. Because Jesus is our eternally perfect ruler. He fills everything that we need in a king. And he does it without fault. So in verse 6, there's, there's four terms that are used to describe Jesus. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So wonderful counsellor, it's an interesting term, right? It refers to someone who gives advice in like major deliberations, important things. And when you add wonderful to that, you get the sense of someone with a supernatural, divine knowledge and wisdom. And Jesus is just that. Jesus is our wonderful counsellor. 
Through the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, he leads and guides us in the right ways. Now, I don't know what you do when you come across a big problem or an issue in life. When I come across a big obstacle, I tend to go to people and ask for advice. I'll ask this person and that person and I'll bounce ideas off and I'll keep on getting thoughts and opinions and think it over until I think that I've got enough information to deal with the problem. And then I go and I give it a crack. Now, the problem with that is that people aren't perfect. I'm not perfect, other people aren't perfect, and sometimes even the best thought-out plan and the most well-intentioned advice isn't actually the best way to deal with a problem. It's generally pretty effective, but sometimes things just haven't turned out the way that I wished they would have. And I think this happens the most when I don't carefully listen to the best advice of all. Because when we need guidance, our best bet is to go to our King who speaks through our, to us through his word and through the Holy Spirit. He gives perfect counsel on the best way forward because Jesus isn't just an okay counsellor. He isn't just, you know, a kind of decent counsellor. He isn't just that he is the mate who gives good advice most of the time, counsellor. He is the wonderful counsellor. But more than that, our king is a mighty God. He doesn't just give advice, he wields ultimate power. And the fact that our promised King Jesus is described as mighty God is a big deal because Isaiah is very clearly stating that our King isn't just a normal human ruler, right? He isn't just some immortal sent by God to rule over us, but he is God himself. Kings back in the ancient world often claimed to be demigods or sons of gods or things like that. But this is a unique thing because Isaiah is claiming that the ruler is the mighty God himself. He can't be talking about David or Solomon or some other cool king because only Jesus, born 800 years later, remember, fits that bill as the mighty God. And as the mighty God, our king has complete control over our circumstances. Through all the trials and all the challenges we have in life, he holds on to his people. He's in charge. Jesus himself said that not one hair falls from your head without God's knowledge. Hair didn't fall, not preordained. He cares for and he protects us. He protects his people and nothing is able to overcome him. But also, he is our everlasting father. Our king rules over us, but he rules over us with fatherly love and affection. He cares for us and he guides us as the perfect father. Now, I don't know what all of your relationships are like with your dads. Uh, I don't know what everyone here, every, all of your experiences have been. I do know that some people have had struggles with their dads. I do know that some people have been hurt or neglected by bad fathers. I know that some people haven't had a dad in their lives at all. Some dads are no longer with us. Some of you are dads, and you know how hard it is to do a good job of being a father. Now, I don't know that yet, don't worry. I've, I've got a pretty good idea, though. I've seen How to Dad on YouTube, and I'm pretty sure I'm set. But the good news for us is that no matter what our experience is with dadding, we have a king who is a perfect and everlasting father. He doesn't rule with an iron fist, but he rules with fatherly love. He cherishes and cares for every single one of us. He rebukes as a father does. Sometimes he even disciplines as a father does. 
but always in love. He always loves. He always provides. He always cares for us. He always does everything for the good of his children. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's not a ruler who enjoys battles and conflict and subjugation, but he ushers in peace for his people. He's having defeated all of their enemies, like we discussed earlier. Now, again, back to World War II, when Hitler was building up power right before World War II, uh, the Prime Minister of England was a guy called Neville Chamberlain. And he decided with this Hitler dude, he would go for a policy of appeasement. He clearly wanted some land and stuff, so, you know, whatever. So when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia for their nice big factories to build tanks with, Chamberlain was like, yeah, okay, gave him a bit of a telling off, don't do that, that's naughty, but let him keep the lands he had taken and came home to tell everyone, no war, guys, peace in our time. But it wasn't a lasting peace. It was followed by a war a year or two later that was even worse because of that delay. And Jesus is not a ruler like that. He doesn't make a kingdom of peace by sort of pushing his enemies out of sight, out of mind. You know, don't worry, tuck them in behind there just to have them come back and hit you later. No, Jesus has won the victory once and for all. And the kingdom that he establishes is eternal, everlasting, supreme, and nothing else will ever threaten it. Like our passage tells us, it says that every warrior's boot, every blood-stained garment will be burnt because they won't be needed anymore. I'm reminded again of one of my favourite verses, one which looks forward to when God's kingdom is fully arrived, when it comes in completion, when Jesus returns. In Revelation 22, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Our perfect, our eternal king, the one who God's people longed for and waited for for thousands of years, he has come and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why this is such a huge and important occasion because the light has dawned. He has come and he has paid the price for our sin. He has defeated death itself. So let's go on. Let's remember and celebrate his birth in the next few weeks with lots of food and lots of family and presents because he has come. Our king, who is the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace is here. And so we've looked at those three things, right? We've looked at three things in one of those prophecies about the promised Messiah, which tells us about this perfect king. Jesus, who was prophesied for thousands of years before his birth. So I hope that as we go from here, we go with a greater understanding and appreciation, with our hearts more ready to worship and remember the birth of our King. Our King who is the light in our darkness. Our King who is victorious over our foes. And our King who reigns forever as the eternally perfect, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The King who loves every single one of his people so much that he came to earth as a tiny little child. He became the lowest of the low and endured the worst of it all so that he could take our sins with him to the cross. So what's your response to your king? Do you love the darkness? Do you love the darkness of your sin, the empty idols of our culture, 
those fleeting little passions so much that you'll turn your back from our king? Or do you give those up? Do you turn away? Do you step into the light? Do you become a lantern by which the rest of the world will see the light of his goodness and grace? Amen. Let's pray, guys. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you that we can come together and learn and worship and know more about you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you'll change our hearts, that you'll change our minds, that you'll change all of our being, Lord, to know you, to be constantly worshipping you, to be seeking to serve you, Lord. Lord, we know that we often turn away from you, we often turn back into the darkness, and we pray that you'll continue to be with us, Lord. Keep on seeking us out, keep on finding us and shining your light upon us, Lord. Lord, we love you, we want to serve you and know you more. We thank you that you came as an innocent baby, Lord, to pay for our sins. We thank you for your sacrifice and we worship you as our perfect, everlasting King. Amen. Alone the stars to a place unexpected Would you believe after all we've projected A child in a manger Lonely and small no weakest of all, no unlikely hero Wrapped in his mother's shore Just a child, is this who we waited for? Cause how many kings stepped out from that throne? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the